Welcome to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Today's guest is Maura Strasberg, professor of law at Drake Law School. I asked her questions about a paper she wrote about polygamy. It is not necessary to read the paper to follow along during this podcast, but if you're interested, there's a link in the description below. Most of the conversation was about polygamy, but we spent the last half hour of the podcast talking about polyamory and same-sex marriage. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe and share with a friend. And now, to the interview. So before we get into the paper a little bit, I'd like to have you take us through Reynolds v. United States and some of the other statutes and regulations that were around that time regarding the legality of polygamy. The historical. Yeah, the historical element. Yes. Okay, so, um, uh, I mean, I think we have to put this in the context of the, you know, expansion of settlement into the West, right? right? And you have a period of time um, where, uh, you know, you don't really have a lot of states past the, you know, the Mississippi River. I mean, we've got Iowa, you know, as a territory for a good period of time. And so, um, you, know, so you know, some of these states start to come into the Union, but you have a, a vast area of the Mountain West that's uh, a territory. And as a territory, it's governed by Congress. It's, it has no, there's no state government, doesn't have, you know, states' rights. Um, it's completely governed, you know, by congressional statute and, and governors appointed by, by Congress. Um, and... You know, so during this period, you have the, you know, the the, the development of the, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, right. the Mormon religion. You know, part of a, um, so part of this, this period of time in which there was this huge religious uh, awakening and um, uh, sort of explosion. Uh, you know, you've got the Shakers developing. You have all kinds of religious communities developing all over the country. Um, you know the Amana right. uh, here, here in here, here in Iowa, um, and so you know this is just one of many sort of new new religions that are that are um, appearing during this time. Um, it happens to be one of the more successful in the long in the long run, um, and so you know initially they're 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 settling um, uh, you know in various places in the settled you know the the the, the states. Um, including right around the Mississippi here, um, and the 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 introduction of polygamy to to the to the um, Church of Latter Day Saints was a you know wasn't something that it began with. It was a you know a um, the prophet got a message in a sense that this is what he should do. He should establish. Polygamy as part of the religion, right. um, and and it it becomes a very central part. Um, it, it 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 has a lot to do with um, the the sort of the theology of the Mormon Church, um, you know, which is that uh, God was once a human being in some sense, and 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 rose up. You know, in the same way that Jesus Christ, right. you know, sort of uh, is both human and and divine, um, and that, but that this is possible for every every man to become a god, in a sense, and that, and and that arises out of the creation of a a bloodline, 
um, of, of people over whom one has um, divine power in some sense. Um, and that the, the, the kingdom of heaven, this is the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven, that you know, what you build in the kingdom of in earth becomes your kingdom in heaven. Right. Um, and there's also a you know sort of a normative aspect that that um, uh, having children creates uh, a place for souls to be to be brought to to life again in a mm-hmm. sense, um, and that bringing them into a Mormon or a, a you know Church of Latter Day Saints. Um, uh, household where they're going to be raised that way is going to ensure that they will ra- go to the highest level of, of of heaven. So this heaven has all these levels, and if you're if you're a Mormon and you're properly married in the Mormon Church and you're raised that way, and you're going to end up at the highest level. Um, and and if you're not, you know you'll be somewhere below that if in heaven at all. Right. Um, so there's a lot of theological impetus that is, 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 is going this way. And, you know, why it was that Brigham Young decided that there should be, um, or Joseph Smith decided that there should be polygamy. A lot of, you know, historical argument about whether it was his own sexual proclivities or, you know, some, something else more divinely inspired. Um, but it certainly took off and became a central part of, of you know, sort of Mormon religious practice. But doing that um, in, the, in a sort of monogamous, non-purely Mormon setting created a lot of hostility. Right. Um, and so they were essentially run out of, I think they were in Gutenberg maybe, um, and, uh, you know, uh, attacked. Um, and, and this triggered the, you know, the long trail out to mm-hmm. Utah where they settled. Um, but polygamy was a central aspect of, of the religion. And even today, the Mormon church repudiated polygamy in about 1893 because essentially it was, it was running for its life. I mean, Congress finally figured out that taking away its property, just un, basically taking away its ability to be a legally recognized corporation and own property um, would, would really hurt, and it did. Right. And, and they, they backed away. But you know, it it's not it's not that it's not theologically still justified. It's just been decided that it's not necessary to do. Right. Right. It's not it's not required, but it could at any time become something that is viewed as necessary mm-hmm. and appropriate. So it's you know so that's the Mormon Church's relation to polygamy, which which is the background for for Congress enacting laws that. Um, once they realize, okay, so the Mormons have gone out, they've settled Utah, they're a majority of the citizens out there, although mm-hmm. not completely, um, and as a result, and they you know, sort of have a lot of the control over civil institutions, they're able to engage in these polygamous marriages, actually legal marriages, they, they simply decided, okay, we can legally marry more than one person, um, and so Congress enacted the, the first um, polygamy law, the, the, the Edmonds Act. 
Um, I think that was the first one. Actually, I have to consult my article. But I, I, it, th- these details are not so important. Right. The, the, the first one, which said you couldn't legally marry more than one person. Um, and that's what Reynolds was prosecuted right. under. He, you know, it, it was... Uh, it didn't have a, a bigamy statute in the territory because it was then just a territory. And, and Congress might not have had any laws about marriage because, again, that was a state, you know, it's the states that, that um, legislate marriage and right. control marriage. That's part of the police power that's reserved to the states. Um, so they were kind of free to do what they wanted in the absences of, of some federal statute there. And so so Congress enacted statutes say you can't marry more than one person at a time. Right. Um, and Reynolds had legally married more than one person, and so... It came, it came to the Supreme Court. Um, and, and the Supreme Court, I mean, if you read the Reynolds case today, you, you know, you, you're struck most by, you know, the, the incredible racism of it. Right. Um, and that and subsequent Supreme Court opinions in the, in the late 1800s, um, you know, this one talked about it as an odious practice that up till now, until the Mormons took it up, had only been pra- practiced by Asiatic and African people, right, and and sort of contrasted it to Western civilization. You know, references to barbarism. Later opinions talk about you know sort of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's a whole um, just uh, very simple say, hey, you know, this is not our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, and we can reject this simply for that reason. Right. Um, but. It wasn't strictly that. I mean, um, there was also another layer of argument in Reynolds, and it's it's hard to make sense of exactly, but it's it's derived from um, a sort of political science philosopher named Francis Lieber, who had who had come from Germany, had been educated um, at you know sort of uh, at the time Hegel was teaching in German universities. Um, and Hegel had done a lot of what we would taken a lot of anthropological information, what we would see as anthropological information today, and sort of incorporated it into his vast philosophy of you know of everything and why it all happens the way it does. Um, and Lieber had certainly picked up on that, had had you know learned about this information. What I'm talking about is. Uh, Jesuit priests going off to China and sending back reports on, you know, on lifestyle and politics and everything in, in China, which included polygamy mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and Hegel had come to the view that that polygamy was um, that marriage. I mean, he had a whole philosophy of political philosophy, the philosophy of right, which involved sort of building up to civil society through private relationships, that marriage was not just sort of personal, mm-hmm. you know, and about sex and having children and, you know, sort of necessary in, in those ways, but that, that the marital relationship and the state's involvement in the marital relationship was part of creating a civil society mm-hmm. in which people could um, understand that that their participation in a in a in a, a broader polity was 
was not suppressing their individuality, but making it possible, right? And so the marriage relationship, here you are, you're two individuals, you do what you want, you get married, and somehow you manage to find yourself even more so in this relationship. You know, there's more freedom, even though there's constraints. Marriage is definitely constraining. Um, but it, it, it sort of teaches a lesson of social transcendence that, you know, pure individuality, pure narcissism is not ultimately as fulfilling as being part of something right. um, that's intersubjective and social. And that, of course, that makes possible, ultimately, you know, being in a society which has all kinds of laws, which limits you in any number of ways, but yet seeing this as preserving your freedom, creating and preserving your freedom, right? You know, so it's the, you know, the state of nature versus, you know, the... The, the society of laws and, and how to understand why we come to prefer the society of laws. Right. Um, um, so, so Hegel has this, incorporates, and he's really, I think, the first to, to take marriage as a political institution seriously. Right. I mean, other people had certainly talked about it. Rousseau was, was, was interested in it. But I think he, 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 he creates this structure in which they're linked um, in very important ways. Maybe... He, he might go beyond what we would be willing to go beyond. And he certainly had an extremely, you know, heterosexual, sexist right, view of right. marriage. And, you know, he thought, he thought women were more like vegetables and men were more like animals. <laughs> I mean, he had some crazy <laughs> ideas, to say the least. Um, but, so, this Francis Lieber um, uh, had, uh, you know, adopted... Uh, a good deal of these notions, not as much of Hegel's, you know, sort of um, metaphysics and such, but uh, he he sort of developed this notion of the relationship between forms of marriage and the kind of society, the kind of political structure your society was. Mm -hmm. um, and so his his view was that that polygamy was linked to, to despotism. I mean that. And despotism meaning, you know, the authoritarian rule of, of one person who had complete power, uncontrolled power, by a constitution, by a legislature, by, by, by anything. Um, uh, I'm thinking of the Saudi prince right now, right, um, in, that, in that sense. Um, uh, and so you have, so what's the link between polygamy and this political form? Well, polygamy, and we're always talking about polygyny, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about one man, multiple wives, right? Because there is, practically speaking, no polyandry right. in the world. There's a little bit in Nepal um, where two brothers might marry a single woman, mostly because the land can't support too many children, right? So that you okay. sort of, you, you concentrate your genetic yeah, you know, heritage in, a, in, in the children of one woman. Right. Um, but it, it's, it doesn't work out any better for women. <laughs> they don't have more power in this situation. So, you know, either way, it doesn't seem to be a good, a good setup. Um, but anyway, for the most part, we're talking about polygyny. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you, you know, you have, I mean, basically you have one man who's sort of at the top of a pyramid, mm -hmm. right? A pyramid of wives and a, and a larger base of children. Um, and, and the, I mean, the interesting to think about, for us to think about, you know, we're not used to polygamy, but 
you know, the idea that fathers are competing with their sons for wives. Right. Right? That, I mean, you know, you'd have some 50-year-old, some 60-year-old, and he's marrying some, you know, 17- or 18-year-old. And where does that leave his 40-year-old sons and his, you know, 35-year-old sons and his 25-year-old sons and his 18-year-old sons, right? Um, They're not, insofar as they're part of this common enterprise and still sort of under the thumb of the father and economically sort of contributing to the family, trying to build up their own wealth to start their own pyramid. Um, You know, it's not so easy for them to do. Um, Hard to compete with somebody who's got all these resources feeding their their power. Um, And you, I mean, just from a familial perspective, I mean, if if you try to imagine, you know, okay, you have this one father who's, you know, there's one father, tons of kids, lots of wives, mm-hmm. and you know the father is the one with the power. You know? right. um, in some sense, on the other hand, the reality of polygamous families is the father's like not around very much, and the mothers are running the show. Right. Um, but uh, you know, there's something to being the only one. Uh, it has a you know it has a you know, impact, and they're the ones you know who sort of decide. Who gets what? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so, how is that connected to despotism? Well, I mean, you could see, you know, on the one hand, you have this sort of proliferation of individuality, many, many different centers of control. That's that's monogamy, and the monogamous family is just kind of weak, right? right? I mean, kids grow up, they leave, they establish their own families. I mean, they have emotional ties to their parents, but it's not like a family has you right. some sort of grasp right, right? Um, and and so it's the weakness of the monogamous family that that is the both the good and the bad you know I mean the really the good of it in some sense mm-hmm. because it 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 lets people out into civil society and and lets those other structures become more important right um, it also I think, I mean, you know, Hegel was of the view, and Lieber would probably agree, that notions of equality are more, come out of monogamous relationships in a way they don't out of polygamous. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, there's just one other person, right? When there's just one other person, then you you are somewhat equal, even when you're, you know, your legal status in society is very different, nonetheless. Right. Um, You know, one plus one is an asymmetrical thing. You know, one against two, one against three, one against four, I mean, how can you be equal when you're not enough, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're mm-hmm. insufficient for this one um, husband, right? right. They, they, need, they need somebody else. Um, and so, I mean, it, there's a message, message of inequality, there's a reality of inequality. You don't get the full attention of that person, you don't get the full resources. Um, and so, it's 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 just fundamentally not creating this, you know, this foundation for some sort of gender equality, right. um, you know. And then, of course, if if what you're going to do is get married, be one of many wives, and have lots of children, then there isn't a lot of need to educate you. Right. Um, uh, and you're just and you're going to be pretty ground down by. <laughs> taking care of all these kids in the absence of a father slash husband who's really fully committed to your children 
right. and you. Um, so, you know, gender equality issues, sort of political structure issues. So anyway, the, the Supreme Court picks up on this in, in Reynolds in a very mm, uh, ellip, you know, elliptical uh, way. They, it's not so clear what they're talking about. You know, you have to, they do, I think, mention Lieber um, uh, briefly, but it's like, you know, they just sort of say, oh, this is, you know, more likely to lead to despotism. Um, and, uh, and, you know, society has a lot to deal, is going to have to deal with the, the uh, whatever it is that polygamy produces, social relations, et cetera, you know, that, that we would have to do, deal with this. And it also talks about, you know, how, what impact a, a community of polygamists might have in a larger monogamous society just suggesting that it might have an impact. You know, it might sort of stay contained for a while, but it, it's not likely to. But this all happens in two paragraphs. Right. Right? Just not much. Right. I mean, and I think, you know, it, perhaps very easy at that time, a lot of, you know, uh, you know s- social horror at the idea of polygamy mm-hmm. um, made it easy for the court to just sort of tap into that, say a little bit, and move on, right? And right. there wasn't a lot of um, uh, uproar in relation to that. And that, that stayed the same for, you know, there were a couple more polygamy cases that came to the court. As, as Congress shifted the laws so that they weren't strictly aimed at people who legally married each other, because as soon as that became illegal, they, you know, stopped legally marrying their second and third wives. Or first they started simultaneously marrying two people at once because then neither one would have been married before. (laughs) That didn't work. So, I mean, they evolved ways of continuing their polygamous practice, which was very religiously important. Um, Don't don't want to in any way downplay that. Um, And so the, the laws had to evolve with that and so periodically something would come to the Supreme Court to sort of resolve, you know, whether the laws properly covered the conduct that someone had been arrested for. Um, um, and then the more, more, you know, then, then they, they dropped polygamy, and right. this, it didn't mean it was the end of polygamy, but those who insist upon being polygamous, um, uh, you know, they moved down to Mexico um, uh, for, you know, for a while they sort of went out into the you know more isolated parts of the state or this polygamous community that grew right on the border between Arizona and Utah, um, Idaho, up in Canada. Um, so it, it became something that, you know, it was kind of a little pockets of people who were outlaws, but mainstream Mormon society became monogamous. Right. Um, and so there were there weren't a lot of prosecutions. Nothing. Things weren't going back up to the Supreme Court anymore. It was sort of over. Right. Um, in in that way, um, you know. And then we come to modern times, right? And modern times, we have a we have a a development of our a um, our First Amendment uh, freedom of religion jurisprudence, um, which becomes much more protective of religion, non-Christian religion, right. um, as, you know, and, and then, which of course turns around and, and protects Christian, Christianity as well, but, um, so we have this, this burgeoning First Amendment jurisprudence, um, you know, we have 
changes in sexual mores where the you know you have divorce multiple marriage serial serial polygamy right where people don't live you know they don't have multiple wives at the same time but they you know marry one they divorce one they get married to somebody else maybe as many you know as many times as they can manage right. in their in their life hollywood stars you know howard Hughes, right. um, donald trump um so you know the question is what's the difference why is that you know why is that okay mm-hmm. you know the, you know the idea of divorce becomes acceptable in a way that it wasn't hard for us to imagine, but mm-hmm. really wasn't acceptable right. um, before. And then, you know, then adultery laws come under attack, and, you know, why do people have to be married to have sex at all, both from the perspective of people who were never married in the first place, um, you know, right. fornication laws. Um, uh, and so the whole sexual aspect of polygamy you know, it's bad for someone to have sex with more than one person, right? Becomes something that we're just sort of a little less convinced of. Right. Um, you know, and then you have the development of gay rights movement and, you know, the decriminalization of, of um, same-sex sex um, and ultimately the recognition of same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, that's, I mean, that's really why I came into this, because I was, it was in the 1990s, um, Justice Scalia had written um, an opinion, a dissent to the first positive gay rights case that came out of the, the Supreme Court, which was Romer versus Evans. Right? So the, the negative case was before that, that was the case that, that said, yeah, it was okay for Georgia to criminalize same-sex sex. Um, but, you know, several years after that, um, Arizona, not Arizona, Colorado enacted a um, constitutional amendment uh, which prohibited um, localities, anything larger than the state, um, from uh, protecting rights based on sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So it prevented, like, a college town from, like, Boulder from enacting a civil rights ordinance that would protect same-sex couples or, or individuals. Um, uh, and basically, on a statewide basis, said, look, you can in no way consider sexual orientation um, as a problem, as a basis for, for discrimination, right? Which means you're actually saying, go ahead, discriminate. It's fine. There's just, there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. Anyway, the case went up to the Supreme Court, and and you know the question was whether they violated the Fourteenth Amendment, um, equal protection of the laws, to sort of make it impossible for people to you know petition their local government for recognition or to be to to be intentionally discriminated. And the majority of the court found that this law reflected animus toward mm-hmm. you know gay people and, and struck it down as unconstitutional, even in the face of having previously said it was fine for a state to legalize, legally make same-sex sex criminal. But this wasn't about sex, right? right. This was just about status, um, which, you know, made it a little easier for the court to take this step. Right. And Scalia wrote a blistering dissent to this opinion. Um, and one of the things he said was, well, you know, if 
if you know the state doesn't have a right to sort of morally disapprove of somebody you know or someone's actions in this way then how are we going to justify state criminalization prohibitions on incest um on you know pedophilia on you know bestiality and of course um polygamy Mm -hmm. right the parade of horrors right oh now that you've done this you know everything else you've opened up pandora's box and this is all going to have to be legalized because this is discrimination too right and you know you know I'm, i'm a gay person i was you know, very appreciative of Romer versus Evans. I wanted same-sex marriage to be legalized. Um, and I, I read this and I thought, well, you know, yeah, what about this polygamy thing? I mean, I never thought about polygamy. Um, didn't grow up in the Mountain West. Right. Um, and I thought, well, okay, so does this, you know, if I support same-sex marriage, should I also support the decriminalization and the recognition of polygamous marriages? Mm-hmm. Let me let me think about this. Right. Um, you know, is this you know is this something that I would agree with him on and say in a sense say yeah okay we should open the door to this at least or we shouldn't right and how am I going to distinguish? I I certainly understood that polygamy that this throwing polygamy in with same sex marriage was not helping same sex right. marriage. Right. But I didn't know whether that was because polygamy was misunderstood or because it was different. So, I mean, that's what I I undertook to think about when I first started writing about it. And this article, which was published in 2015, this is like one of four or five articles. It's the the second to the last of of the articles that I wrote on polygamy. And I, and I started off really just asking, you know, what is the, dis- the difference between monogamy and polygamy and same-sex marriage, right? right? Um, are those distinctions that, that are, are significant and justify treating polygamy differently and same-sex marriage differently from polygamy, but more like, mon- you know, heterosexual monogamy? Um, and so it's really ultimately about monogamy versus polygamy. Um, or, or not. What, what's right. the case for this and so of course I started with Reynolds and you know the, the jurisprudence that existed and you know it was fairly terrible I mean it, you know except for this this point about despotism and, and mm-hmm. such and certainly if that's true you know if polygamy does lead to a social order that's completely inconsistent to what our constitutional order has mm-hmm. has created and the principles of equality and and liberty that, that you know, we, we've embraced, then of course it makes sense that we wouldn't want it, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's a pretty significant thing. Um, the problem is, as enamored as I am of Hegel and philosophical sort of speculative anthropological understandings, I mean, I could and did spin a long tale of, of differences from, a, from that point of view. It's not really empirical. Right. And it's pretty pretty heavy stuff um, you know Hegel anything based on Hegel is pretty 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 heavy in that way um, it's it's interesting and intriguing might be right in some ways but it's not exactly an argument you can really bring to a court right. um, you know so I did come up with a lot of arguments about why and I you know sort of spelled out some of them to you a little bit about you know 
the structure of monogamous relationships versus polygamous relationships and how that can you know affect individual development and and political sensibility shall we say um, but it's not something that I really thought could ever work in a court <laughs> right. right but here you have this is what Reynolds is if it's based on anything real that's what it's based on right because the other part is just you know racist um, and 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 you know sort of you know Western uh, you know uh, anyway so so I mean I, I I struggle to sort of try and make a distinction I mean ultimately you know um, and people have gone two different directions some people have gone in the direction of saying yeah well polygamy should also be legalized mm-hmm. you know that this is just as illiberal and 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 bad as you know the persecution of gay people, you know, and I, I I end up going the other way, which is a difficult position to take. I mean, it's much easier to just be sort of like, oh yeah, you know, right, right. Let's you know, let's not make any distinctions like this. Um, but I, I I felt I felt that there was some legitimacy to this, but I had a hard time putting my finger on what it was going to be, right? And you know, there was sort of anecdotal a lot of anecdotal reports about, you know, some very bad things that were happening in polygamous communities in terms of sexual abuse and marrying children off against their will at very young ages and, and such. But, um, you know, connecting that in some kind of uh, necessary way to polygamy right. was problematic. And, and there were anthropological studies of, of other polygamous communities in which... You know, there certainly were positive, positive family relations, and and um, right. you know things were good for women in some ways. You know, sister wives and sharing the burden, and you know, only having a part of a husband to deal with. Um, you know, had their positive <laughs> aspects um, to, to 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 women's lives, and uh, you know, takes a village to raise children. Well, there you had your village right, in, right there. Um, so, and, and of course, you know, you have people who are committed to the religious value, you know, I mean, it's, it's fundamental to their salvation that they are in these relationships. Um, and so that makes it, you know, something that is a lot more positive no matter what's going on. Right. Um, but anyway, you know, it's sort of a feminist case for polygamy. Um, uh, and... I, you know, I did want to keep my eyes wide open and not be, you know, as 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 uh, prejudiced as the Reynolds Court right. was, and just saying I I don't approve of it, so I'm you know, I'm, I'm going to take this position. You know, so I did you know read these accounts and 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 try to take them seriously, and so it you know there was a period in my of my scholarship where, um, you know, I was trying to make these arguments, but it was hard to make the kind of arguments that would, I think, be really um, have some weight in a modern court mm-hmm. of law, um, and and then uh, then came along this Canadian case, which is what you know the article that I I, I pointed you to read right. was about, and the, the Canadian case, you know, reflects the same thing happened in Canada that Canada has well Canada has a fairly new constitution, its charter, um, and. Uh, you know, adopted uh, in the mid-19th century, and it has 
it was easy to interpret in very liberal, progressive ways because that's it was written that way. Right. You didn't have to work so as hard as as we've had to to get there. Um, and so at 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 you know 2011, someone challenges the criminalization of polygamy under the Canadian Charter, and mm-hmm. of course it's a new question for them. Everything's a new question for them. Um, they don't have this history that we have, uh, you know, precedent. And they also have a, a mechanism which we don't have um, in, our, in our system, which is the ability to, for a question to just be referred to a court, a constitutional question, and for the court to hear this without an actual plaintiff and defendant. Okay. So there's no person that was being actually prosecuted who's whose case was being, these issues were being resolved through this case. Um, We have a case or controversy requirement. Our courts can only hear cases or controversies. So we can't just say, is this constitutional? You have to have, get somebody for whom that becomes important to their liberty or or other interests. Um, And so this British Columbia court gets this question, this reference, and proceeds to assemble um, people, you know, to, to take both sides, mm-hmm. right? So you have, the government defends its law, but they, the court appoints um, amik, amiki who, um, who uh, represent the other side, oh, on both sides, but they're, they're people who are defending, uh, who, are, who are attacking the law, right. taking the position that it is a violation. And um, they bring experts in and, you know, all the scientific literature, the sociological literature, the psychological literature, the anecdotal literature, you know, the people who've testified, you know, Warren Jeffs, you know, former wives, and, you know, you name it, if it was relevant to the question of polygamy, it got brought before this court. Right. Um, and, and, that, and some really interesting statistical work that looked at um, 172 nations and sort of data about women and children in those, in those nations and was able to then correlate that with the presence of polygamy or not um, and sort of to see what impact polygamy as a legitimate practice in a society had on the status of women and children um, in, in a variety of, of indicators. Um, so, I mean, all this... All this uh, Testimony produced for the for for this court what it thought was a strikingly consistent result that you know no matter whether you looked at it at this very large scale statistical analysis or you you know you brought it all the way down to you know particular anecdotal accounts wherever you looked you were going to find that women and children were particularly harmed by the practice of polygamy right. um, and it really wasn't so great for men either um, that you know. Um, talk a little bit in the article about the cruel arithmetic of polygamy right. where you've got you postulate a society of 40, 40 people 20 men and 20 women and um, uh, you've got people from you know sort of uh, some people have more money some people have less lo- money and the the people with more money are the ones who can marry more than one wife right. so you take 25% of the men right um and, uh, you know, they marry, a bunch of them marry two women, a couple of them marry three women, and one marries four, four women. And, and out of this, you end up with, um, 
Uh, let's see what I mean. Just to get my numbers correct, I want to be accurate here. Um, it also mentioned that sometimes up to half of the men end up out of the community. Yeah, well, you'd have, well, first you'd have like forty percent of the the men who would be who wouldn't be married, right? I mean, right. Just it, it doesn't take much. Yeah. For a lot of men to be deprived of 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 partners. Right. Um, so you have this pool of unmarried men, and these are the men who are have the least resources in the society, mm-hmm. right? Going to be least wealthy, least educated, least skilled, um, and they can't get married. <laughs> they right. can't have kids. You know what's that gonna What's that gonna do for you know their life and society when you've got this pool of men who are who are in that position, um, and you know. Some some evidence that you've got, you've got more repressive governments. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know they have a social problem in some sense. Um, you've got countries that are more likely to be um, uh, engaged in in war, right? Because here you have this pool of unmarried men. Well, maybe you better put them in the army, and you know to keep control over them, and then channel their aggression and right. and and frustration. Um, you know, externally rather than internally. Um, so that's that's the, on the on the men's side of it. Um, you know, on the women's side of it, you've got you know, you've got children whose the resources t- for taking care of them has just been spread extremely thinly. Right. I mean, you, you know, take somebody who can, you know, provide decently for one or two children, and you give them twenty. <laughs> And yeah. the kids are not getting anything from the father. In fact, the father is saving his money for his next wife. Right. Right? So the investment in children, why invest in children when you can just have more? Right. There's no, there, there's no need to and no, no motivation to do it. Um, so not a lot of investment in children. Right. Obviously not a lot of attention from the father. Um, and, um, you know, poverty. <laughs> right. Uh, you know the, the the GDP of these countries is less than yeah. than if you were to if they were to become monogamous, there would you know be very clear um, effects on the GDP simply because people would spend money on their families instead of buying wives. Right. Um, so, so and then there's the effects on women. Women are, you know, they get because there's competition for women, right. It becomes sort of commodified, mm-hmm. um, and the competition produces a um, a need to marry younger and younger women because the pool to keep expanding the pool you have to keep dipping deeper into the you know the the age range of who's available, right. um, and so you you get marriage at very young ages, which means you're not going to be educated. It means you're going to start having children when you're fairly young can have lots of children because that's that's what you're going to do um, not good for women physically um, not good for them economically um, you know from a mental health perspective they're you know somewhat powerless fairly burdened don't have a lot of support except maybe other sister wives who may or be may or may not be in competition you know sometimes you can have a nice situation and sometimes you could have a not very nice situation right. Um, so a lot of negative effects on women, um, and, you know, interestingly, going back to this sort of 
you know, more philosophical notion that a monogamy reflects some sort of gender equality, that it pushes toward gender equality, even though it certainly wasn't a very equal institution for much of its its existence. It it has a natural push toward equality. you see that the uh, the legal status of women in these countries is markedly worse than the legal status of women in monogamous countries, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so you have this statistical evidence, and you know you don't you can't say causally, okay, this is what causes it, right? I mean, statistics doesn't show you that, um, but you know some pretty striking evidence, and it. You know, I mean, it's 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 all being analyzed by by an economist who's you know controlling for the effect of more and less resources. So, you know, polygamous countries are poorer countries. I mean, that's also maybe a consequence of the polygamy. But even if it's not, you know, some control for the fact that you know, that the, the developed world is less polygamous right. than the undeveloped world. Um, so anyway, ton of evidence. The court concludes that. Um, even though this does substantially infringe upon religious liberty, this, this criminalization of polygamy, um, that it is con- consistent with the, with the, the, charters, the charter. Um, at the same time, approximately at the same time, we have a case here in the, the United States, right. this Utah case involving Cody Brown and his, his family, um, which is poorly litigated by the state of Utah, um, and uh, if a you know a federal district court saying essentially that Utah, Utah, which has a law on the books which prohibits both legal multiple marriage and attempts to get to marry without involving the law, avoid right. that by just cohabitating as man and wife, um, has had this law on the books since its founding because it had to. It's written into its enabling ordinance as a state. Um, This court takes a look at the polygamy law, looks at the rather impoverished justifications stemming from Reynolds, you know, through modern time that have been provided for the law and says, hey, this can't withstand our modern, you know, uh, free exercise jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. It can't withstand our modern, um, you know, 14th Amendment uh, jurisprudence um, and sort of splits the baby can't can't quite repudiate um, uh, Reynolds because it's a lower court and the mm-hmm. Supreme Court not only not only is that a Supreme Court precedent but it's been cited approvingly through modern modern times as an as an example of a, of a situation where sometimes the social harm is so great that that even a, a an infringement on religious liberty is permitted, right. um, so doesn't doesn't attempt to strike down the um, prohibition on multiple legal marriages, um, but does say that the prohibition on cohabitation in a mar- marital cohabitation. Um, is illegal, right. right? And ultimately, that gets appealed to the Tenth Circuit, and the Tenth Circuit strikes the whole case down as moot because Cody Brown is living in Nevada, and um, and the Utah Attorney General says we're not going to, we won't go after people mm-hmm. <laughs> in this situation. 
Um, so as a precedent, it's sort of not, it doesn't have real precedential value. Um, but it was the first successful attempt to defend polygamy right. in, in, in the courts, really. Um, but the problem was none of the evidence that the Canadian court had in front of it came to this American court, right? They had, they just sort of had some old hacked, you know, ha hack arguments that weren't very good and, you know, were good enough in the old days but aren't so good nowadays. Right. And so the question is, if we took this evidence, you know, what, what's available from the Canadian case and, and applied it to our own constitutional evaluation, how would things come out? I mean, I, personally, I think we wouldn't even need to get to strict scrutiny because I think the, the, um, the Utah court did some things that allowed it to claim that this was religious discrimination in a way that I don't think it really was. I mean, were the laws motivated by the reality of, of the Mormon practice in the 1800s? Yes. Um, does that mean that they are written in such a way that they're actually religiously um, discriminatory? No, I don't think so. I think that anybody's marital co co cohabitation is caught under these laws, just as anybody's bigamy, whether right. it's religiously motivated or not. Um, but, but, you know, that's part of a complicated parsing of the, of the whole decision. Right. So, I don't know. I talked for a long time. You haven't asked me a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in the Brown case, in addition to the free exercise clause, uh, they also mentioned the Smith hybrid rights analysis framework and the due process clause could you go through those two a little bit and why the Browns felt like they were relevant to their case? Well, the due process clause, that's, that's um, the 14th Amendment. That's probably and that's, okay. So that's just equality, right? right? And, and, and uh, non-discrimination. So, um, you know, I think the question of, uh, it, you know, even, so, you know, we're sort of that... That was a little. That was before the Supreme Court had recognized same-sex marriage, right. right? So it was before we got to a point where we knew that perhaps we would have some kind of higher-level scrutiny for sure, mm -hmm. it, because marriage was involved, maybe. Or um, so the court in, in Brown um, for the for the the due process argument sort of hit all bases, you know, rational basis. So there's three. There's technically sort of three levels of scrutiny that the court has described itself as doing sometimes, which is rational basis, which means if a legislature could come up with something which could be a rational basis, we would approve this law, even if that wasn't why they did it. Okay. And that's for a situation which we have no reason to think there's any discrimination going on of, a, um, of the kind that worries us. I mean, laws make discriminations all the time. Mm -hmm. They classify and say you can do this or you can do this kind of thing and not this kind of thing or you know if you're 18 you can drink and if you're not 18 you can't right I mean discrimination is is what laws do but um, unless we think there's something invidious about it we're not going to look very closely at it we're just going to make sure it's not completely arbitrary right and makes no sense um, if we think that something 
is, is potentially invidious about it. And, and we have certain things that we worry about. Obviously, we worry about race. Right. We've come to worry about sex, but only in a sort of moderate way. We're not entirely convinced that every discrimination based on sex is improper. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this notion of intermediate scrutiny. We'll look at it and make sure that it's reasonably, more than reasonably related to its goal, that it, you know, it has some justifications that are not just theoretical, but actual. Um, and then, then we have strict scrutiny, certainly for race, which is to say that you have to have a compelling um, state purpose, and, it, and the rule has to be narrowly drawn to, to achieve that. And if, right. if the purpose isn't compelling, or it's not narrowly drawn, then we, we're going to think this is this rule is enact this law is enacted in order to promote discrimination. Right. So so we have these three different levels and the court not knowing which level really applied in this situation, you know, sort of went through all of them and said, well, you know, these justifications there's just nothing there. Right. It doesn't matter what level of scrutiny we apply. I don't even think this can pass rational basis scrutiny, let alone the highest level of scrutiny. Um, and in some cases, in some ways, it was right because we hadn't really the case had not really been created. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we're just kind of resting on this old, you know, rather confusing and problematic um, decision. Um, so that that was the Fourteenth Amendment right. argument. The problem is, no compelling state interests were really articulated, nor was any evidence presented to show that this really, there was a link between polygamy and the kinds of things you were trying to prevent, whatever the harm was of the law. So you have to identify what are the harms and the fact that the harms are actually caused by this practice that you're regulating in order to have any kind of fit between the law and um, its its claim purposes. so this is where the reference case comes in as providing this articulation of what the harms of polygamy are and why we should believe that they actually are related to polygamy. Right. Um, the, the, the hybrid analysis is sort of a... I mean, t- the truth of the matter is we're not even sure that the hybrid analysis really is you know, going to have any staying power. It was a way to explain the results in some cases that otherwise seem kind of hard to justify. Um, and, and that is, there, there were some um, some freedom of religion cases that, uh, you know, we might have said involved a fairly compelling state interest. Um, but the court the court basically said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to say that this is a violation of their rights. You know, one of them is, um, you know, it's Yoder versus Wisconsin, right. which is the case involving the Amish children who were required to go to school past the eighth grade under state law, but the, the, their, their community didn't want them to go to school past eighth grade because that would, that would involve them too much in the world in a way that would make it hard for them to stay in their communities. Right. Um, and... Uh, Sort of in retrospect, this was justified on the grounds that there were parental rights. There's more than one set of rights. It wasn't just freedom of religion. There's also parental rights involved. So, you know, there were a couple of decisions that that kind of went the other way in terms of saying they were infringements on religious freedom in a way that, 
well, I have to back up a little bit. Why, why do we need that justification? It's because under Employment Division versus Smith, this, this, the, the court came up with this rule that said, basically, if you have a law that's generally applicable to a lot of people, um, you know, that's neutral and generally applicable, the fact that it happens to impinge upon some religious practice is not a problem. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be a violation of freedom. So, you know, murder, right? We have a law that prevents you from murdering people. If you have a religious practice that involves human sacrifice, that's going to affect you, right? right? We're not going to say that that's going to be a violation of the Constitution because the, the, the law was not designed to particularly target your human sacrifice. There's right. a broader purpose to it. It happens to, you know, and prohibition and, and you know, the use of wine in, in, in ceremonies. Um, the employment, actually, Division versus Smith was about peyote, right? And the fact yeah. it was a religious thing yeah. for, for the, the two Native Americans that were prosecuting the case. But, um, you know, generally there, was, there were other state interests that were involved in, you know, criminalizing the use of this drug and creating certain consequences for using it. Um, and it wasn't, it happened to affect, have an effect on religion, but it wasn't aimed at religion. Right. So, so these, the hybrid analysis was an explanation of cases that otherwise involved generally applicable and neutral laws, like everyone has to go to school through age 16 or something like right. that. Right? It's not aimed at the Amish community. Right. Um, it, it would pass the generally applicable and neutral law, but the court came out with a different result, and we have to explain how. So yeah. the argument was, oh, there was more than one right involved. There was not just religion, but parental rights or something else, and so that sort of upped the ante in some way. Right. It, it's not a very good argument, um, it, but... It's what's been used to kind of make sense of those cases. Right. So then to get strict scrutiny applied, you would have to show that a law was not neutral and not of general applicability. Is that correct? Right. Right. Okay. And so you do have cases where the court has found this. There was a case, the, um, the Hialeah case, um, involving a... a um, the city of Hialeah enacted a law that prohibited the sacrifice of animals... Um, because there was a Santeria church that had established itself and was engaging as part of its religious practice in, in some sacrifice of animals. And, uh, you know, they didn't like it, so they enacted these ordinances that prohibited that, essentially, but pretty much let everyone else kill whatever animal they wanted for whatever other purpose they wanted, you know, whether it was killing a rat in your house or shooting something for sport or slaughtering it for, you know, kosher slaughter or any other slaughter or, you know, generally we don't have a lot of problem with the killing of animals, you know. Um, And the law just kind of narrowed in, zeroed in on this one practice, picked it up and said, you can't do this but everything else like that, well, that was understood not to be a neutral or generally applicable law. Right. And therefore, it did violate freedom of religion, free right. exercise of religion. Okay. So, so the question is, you know, do our polygamy laws, are they really about Mormons? Right. And the religious, is it really a, a, a picking on the, this religious practice of polygamy? Um, and if we were to engage in strict scrutiny of it from other perspectives, even if we weren't intentionally picking on it. I mean, if it, if it was, you know, um, 
it you know pretty much had a burden on them in, in a particular way, then it would be it would be problematic. Right. Um, or is it about polygamy? Yeah. Not religious polygamy. It happens to be in our country that that well, I mean, up to this point in time that that Mormon polygamy might have been the most visible and and coherent presentation of polygamy in our country. Um, you know, you do have people who, who come from countries where it's culturally accepted who are, in fact, engaging in it. Right. You know, there's, um, there's a whole um, something of a movement, you know, over the past 30 years or so in the African-American community due to the lack of, of available men due to the, mm-hmm. the incarceration of so many black men that um, to, to promote polygamy as a way of sort of stabilizing um, you know, black society so you don't have all these unmarried women with right. children. Um, so, I mean, that's been a, you know, there's been a, a sort of a, a force in that direction, very different thing going on there, right. for sure. Yeah. Um, and then you have polyamory, which was my other thing, right? You have... You know this 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 new this new institution of of uh, you know which is the essence of liberality, right? right? It's not gender specific. It's not you know uh, you know it could be gay or straight. It's you know sort of sexually fluid potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know these multiple relationships, as multi people marriages, perhaps even it can right. it doesn't have to be that level of commitment. And so that was the other thing that I explored a little bit was to think about polyamory and, you know, if I was going to be willing to support the criminalization of polygamy, what did I think about polyamory and could it be distinguished practically, legally? Should it be? Um, Because I think a lot of people are negative about the criminalization of polygamy and the non-recognition of polygamous relationships because actually they have polyamory in mind. Right, yeah. And they think, well, why not? If you can have a same-sex relationship, why can't you be involved with more than one person? What's the problem? Right. Right? Um, and I, I certainly I certainly get that. Um, and it, ideologically, it's so different. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, from a gender equality perspective and a sexuality perspective, it, you know, it reflects some things that are very contemporary in our society. Right. Um, and I, in fact, don't have a lot of problem with it except in one one way, and that is there's no limit on the size of polyamorous relationships. And I think that um, you get, you know, get beyond, you know, say four people into five people, and you get some interesting power dynamics going on. Um, and, and you may have situations where people are really um, caught in a, uh, a situation that, you know, I mean, you know, you sort of, you, at a certain size, you hit cult level, right? right? Um, and, and sort of, you know, how do we, how do we sort of make sure that people don't get sucked into these, this social structure that is ultimately not easy to maintain your individuality and your, your sort of your own power right. in, um, uh, without maybe unnecessarily limiting people. So, I, I mean, you know, 
if 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 I wasn't worried about polygamy, I would say, okay, you know, three, four people. I'd probably be fine with that. Right. Um, but I think legally it's impossible to distinguish po- polyamory from polygamy. I mean, because some polyamorous relationships might involve one man and multiple women. Right. They might involve one woman and multiple men or equal or somewhat equal numbers of men and women. Mm-hmm. But I don't think legally we can distinguish between the polygony, the polygonous relationship, which is hierarchical and which is part of a structure that always limits it to one man and multiple women right. from something that just happens to sometimes look like that. Right. Right? right. I mean, don't know how you can do that legally. Right. And so polyamory is sort of stuck, I think, in certain ways, as long as polygamy is real. <laughs> I mean, if, it, if we ever got to the point, if we evolved to a point where polygamy couldn't be real, right? right then, then I think we, we could rethink it. Right. But we're not there. Right. So with polyamory, you don't have the same issue of multiple legally recognized marriages that you would have well, you with could. polygamy. No, no, you, you could, absolutely. With polyamory. I mean, sure, if people wanted to, you know. Right. If, if you had, you know, one woman and two men, let's say, and and they each wanted to marry each other. So, right. you, you know, the woman would be married to both men and the men would be married to each other, right? Or they, you know, th- that would set up a, you know, a bigamy situation, right. right? That would be legally impossible to do right now. Right. Um, but notice the one of the interesting things about polyamory is that it can be complete, you can close the circle, maybe, um, depending on the relationships, actually. Right. It has the potential in which everybody is equally related to everybody else as opposed to everything funneling up to one person right, right? because the, the wives in a polygamous relationship are not married to each other right um, they may or may not have some choice as to who becomes a wife um, but they don't have that same that same bond right um, and so you know polyamory has the possibility of that but it isn't necessary I mean, you might not have. You might have one woman and two men, and they might not have right. that same relationship. Right. Um, so, you know, it's... I mean, right now, the polyamorous community... Well, I mean, some of them would like to have multiple marriages. I mean, there's legal protection in marriage and legal benefits right. to marriage. And so, you know, somebody's left out of that if you're polyamorous. And that, you know, it is problematic. Right. Um, but... It's yeah, you know, exploring that that possibility is for me hemmed in by <laughs> the consequences it would have for right. me. Would you say that the general motivations or cultural factors affecting polygamy are different than polyamory? Completely, completely. I mean, that polygamy is, you know, is polygamy understood as polygyny, right? Right. Meaning limited, one man, multiple wives. I mean, it's it's old world. Right. I mean, it's it's rooted in really patriarchal notions, right? In which somehow men are distinctly different from women, mm-hmm. I mean, in very important ways. Um, and, and polyamory is rooted in, you know, super modern, progressive, gender fluid, you know, sexuality fluid notions, right? right? Um, so it's it doesn't it doesn't worry me in the same ways. Um, 
I mean, understanding really what, what would a society that was like that look like and what, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to, we don't have, there's no lab, <laughs> right? We have the polygamy lab, right? We got 107, you know, we have all these countries in which some of which have polygamy and some of which don't. So we have a, a laboratory that we can study and see, well, what is it doing? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no polyamorous society. I mean, there's people here and there who are, right. who are living their lives that way. But what would it what would it look like? You know, and it's not dissimilar to the questions that people had about same-sex relationships. Um, you know, what's the impact going to be on society, and is it going to really completely change everything and undermine our way of life and, right. and such? Um, but you did have a lot of people, you know, a fairly large contingent of people who were living as couples, even if they weren't legally married, and and you know, you could kind of see how it was going, you right. know, what what it, effect it was having on things. Um, I mean, polyamory is just harder because, gosh, it's hard to be polyamorous. Right. You know, it's hard to find one person you can fall in love with. Imagine finding two or three right. who, who you fall in love with and they like each other or fall in love with each other. Right. right? It's just a... It, it's not not so easily going to be a mass movement, right. I think. Um and then, you know, sort of trying to appreciate, okay, what is this, what, what are the social impacts of this? What are the political impacts? Are there any? Right. I mean, it's new. Right. We don't, we don't really have a feel for it in that way. Right. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I think it could be a feature of sort of the future, mm-hmm. um, maybe. Right. So it depends on how well it really does meet people's needs. Right. Um, I have a bit of idealistic view of polyamory in that the difference in motivations behind it from polygamy could make it feasible. Uh, like you said, we really don't have a whole lot of idea what if it's possible. Do you, do you have, are you, would you be opti- optimistic, I guess you could say about it, that? Or is it just impossible to tell? No, I mean, first of all, it has to be practically possible. I mean, people have to be able to to live that way, right? right. They have to. There's, you know, jealousy is the big issue right, in the right, polyamorous right. community. I mean, I spent a year reading, you know, Loving More, which was the magazine of the polyamorous community, and, and you know, all the stuff that was out there, right. um, and you know, websites and such, and you know, jealousy, jealousy, jealousy was just like yeah. that's the the enemy of polyamory, right. and you know. I mean, they have a whole view of jealousy as being negative and unnecessary, and, you know, there's loving more. There's always enough love for everybody. It's not a scarce commodity. Well, human beings have to actually get there. If that's, you know, maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. I mean, how consistently can we we do that? Um, You know, I mean, maybe we evolve ways of being in relationships in which this becomes less of an issue. Mm -hmm. But... I don't know. It's, I think it's a pretty real problem. So right. that's that's an internal problem for the polyamorous right. community. I mean, can they actually make it work? I mean, some people can and do make it work. Right. Okay, I acknowledge that. But is it is it is it viable for a lot of people? Right. Um, and you know, and and what effect would it have? I mean, you know, the thing about polyamory is. What if people, what if everybody isn't on board 
right? Suppose you get married to somebody, and then you mm. decide you're polyamorous. Yeah, but problem. the other person isn't. It's a problem. <laughs> right? Right. I mean, they're potentially coerced into... I mean, yeah. monogamy kind of protects that person. They don't have to be... I mean, the reality is, actually... I mean, this is happening anyway, right? People are having affairs. Right. Right? And, you know, people are putting up with their their spouses having affairs because they value the, the marriage or they can't, they don't have a way out of it, you know. Um, but at least they have some legal protection um, right. this way. You know, if polyamory were legal, how would we deal with the people being in different places about this? Right. Just make it that way. So, it, you know, it has its complications to mm-hmm. figure out. I mean, I'm a big fan of science fiction, and you know, right. science fiction is full of polyamory. <laughs> Seems like a good idea, but that's because it's working out. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not somebody who's, who, uh, you know, is out there trying to get in the way of what people want and need. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, that's certainly not, I didn't want anyone to get in the way of what I wanted and needed. Um, so, you know, I'm just sort of, I I just don't have a knee-jerk kind of anything goes response. I sort of understand that these things have, have larger connotations. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, when I think them through, I want to see how they, how they evolve Mm -hmm. before I'm willing to sort of put the law behind them. Right. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot that can be done to make make the legal benefits of marriage less narrow. I mean, health insurance, right? How many people want to get married because so they get health insurance, right? I mean, you know, as we've created a more open possibility of health insurance in this country, you know, it, you don't need to get married to get health insurance, mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, that that takes away one driver toward recognition of of relationships legally. Right. You know, why do you need it? What are the things? What's the protection you need? You know, if we can resolve those issues in other ways, then we don't have to necessarily change. You know, change our marriage laws. People might not care. Right. Um, what are some of the other benefits of having a legally recognized marriage? Well, um, you know, I mean, it can be useful for children, or you can resolve that otherwise. I mean, you can establish parentage without being married these days. Um, you know, what they say, 1,400 federally recognized benefits oh. to marriage, which is why the, you know... The, the, the same-sex marriage cases, that's how they were argued, because there is a lot at, at right. stake. Um, and I can't reel them off on the top of my head. But, I mean, you know, our laws have evolved to create a lot of benefits for marriage mm-hmm. as a way of promoting marriage and, and, and encouraging people to enter into it. Right. Um, and so, I mean, that, 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 that's fine. But I think we've come to recognize that not everyone gets married. Not everyone has two parents. Not everyone has a father and a mother. You know, I mean, that that people have needs 
whether they're married or not. Right. And maybe we should be responsive to those needs. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're we're undermining marriage. I think there's a there's been a lot of concern that marriage is you know a frail institution. Right. And I think I think you know same sex marriage has been good for marriage in that way, in the sense of making it um, you know seem more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, instead of and, and certainly there there's a a whole you know there's a a movement within the gay community which really didn't like this movement, this this attempt to get same-sex marriage because it thought marriage was a bad institution. Gotcha. Okay. And it, it was going to pervert our relationships. <laughs> I mean, and I think they still think so. Okay. Um, so, you know, some of this is just about marriage. This right. Whole, this whole thing. Whoever it is. <laughs> however many people it is. Right. What are some of the factors that may take so long to have same-sex marriage legalized here? Um, well, I think it took a long time for society to recognize, I mean, to get over a certain kind of moralistic um, religious view of it, which was really based on, in, in many ways, on sex itself being disgusting. Right mm-hmm. between any people, but legitimated by reproduction. Right, I mean, I think that's the view right. of, of uh, you know, a, a fair amount of religious right. institutions. And so, you know, if you have a very anti-sex view, but it's but it's made okay by reproduction. Mm-hmm. You take reproduction out of it, um, and suddenly you have this practice which you are not comfortable with, right. and, and don't don't want to legitimate in any way. And to be honest, you know, the same-sex marriage, the, the path toward the recognition of same-sex marriage started with contraception. Right. Because by sort of forcing states to allow contraception, and I know it's hard for you to imagine that contraception would be illegal, but it was illegal for women, not for men, because it was, um, it would protect them from disease. You know, so... So, you know, uh, syphilis mm-hmm. was a justification for condoms, but, but not for women. Um, and so it, it, it's really the, you know, women's birth control that was the subject of, of prohibitions. And, the, I mean, the, the arguments it took to make that a constitutional issue, you know, were essentially arguments... I mean, you never get the court saying sex is good. Absolutely not. <laughs> it, it sort of got there, maybe you know, in in the same sex marriage cases, but still not, you know, not too, not too directly. But I mean, in those cases, it was you know all about sort of autonomy and and the effect of denying people contraception, which was to a sense say we're going to punish you by making you get pregnant. Right. Right. That that's. That's the consequence we want, and you know, and you know, of course, that's a position that society embraced for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what you needed, <laughs> um, but eventually we realized that that was not, that, you know, that that was a a denial of women's autonomy, and um, that, that contraception was necessary in that sense. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it might be one thing to punish someone in one way, but to make them have a kid in 
you know, had their entire life changed and, right. um, by virtue of that um, was, was a rather different form of punishment. So, but once, once, but once reproduction and sex became distinguished in the law so that reproduction wasn't necessary for sex to be okay, right. that's, that was the first step, right? Because that's, you know, in same-sex relationships, you can't connect. You can't say, oh, well, you know, you could have a baby from this, right? right. And, you know, I mean, there were also tortured arguments about people who got married after the, you know, women who were postmenopausal and were allowed to get married even though they couldn't have children or people who were infertile were allowed to get married and couldn't have children, mm-hmm. you know. Lots of work trying to explain why this was okay. Right. Um, and, but different from same-sex couples. Um, and, but that's all, it's all about that connection. Right. Okay. For the religious organizations that were generally anti-sex, what do you think was the origin of that? And that, that goes back a ways. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> mm, I'm, not, I'm not maybe the best person. I mean, there's, there's some great books on the history of sex, right. I think, that, that will do a, a much better job explaining that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to get go there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. So I have one more question about uh, the reference case. Uh, it mentioned the proportionality test, which was essentially weighing the negative effects of a law on religious freedom against the positive effects of the objectives of that law. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, they have their own language to describe right. their scrutiny, right? We have the, you know, sort of rational basis, intermediate, strict scrutiny, and, right. and, and they have this other test. I don't think it's really... I don't think in a really substantive way it's that different. Okay. Just a different way of describing it. Right. I mean, you know, maybe in a case or two it might make a difference, but I think they're just ways of trying to describe how um, how closely one looks at justifications for a law right. um, and and how seriously one takes the, the right that's being protected. Right. Um, you know, and you could probably describe it in a million ways, but what you do... I mean, it's, the Supreme Court does this all the time. They might say they're doing one thing, and they might actually be doing something else, mm-hmm. right? So what you say you're doing and what you do is... It's what you do that's more important, perhaps, than the language you use to describe it. Right. But I'm no expert on Canadian law, so... Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my, my final question is about... Uh, the free exercise clause we talked about Wisconsin v. Yoder is there any other significant cases that would be interesting similar to some that we've talked about so far that involve the free exercise clause well yeah there's I mean there's a a, a great case um, I'm going to have a little trouble remembering the name of it um, it does it involves the uh, this is another case in which uh, no no, uh, the problem is that that the free exercise clause has become a little less important okay. in 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 the last twenty years, and that's because we have the um, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the Federal Religious Freedom okay. Restoration Act, which was designed essentially to counteract the Supreme Court's decision in Employment Division versus Smith, the, the notion that generally applicable. Um, neutral laws that 
might substantially burden religious rights were constitutionally okay. Right. And so um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act basically flips the burden and says, hey, a substantial burden on a religious right has to be justified in a compelling way under, under law, not under the Constitution, but under law. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot, many of the cases that we see now are going to involve the referent religious freedom, religious, and, you know, if you're trying to, to argue that something is burdening your religious rights, if you can bring yourself under referent, you're going to do better than the Constitution. Okay. Right? And so, there's, you know, limited number of cases that, that are going to be purely constitutional. A lot of states have enacted their own referents. Um, which means, again, free exercise is not... They don't need free exercise. Just if you're, if you're claiming religious rights, you're going you're to use the refra. Right. Um, and so free exercise is going to show up really in places where um, you have states without a refra. Okay. And the state is restricting the... Um, well, a polygamy law is, is the perfect example, right? Polygamy laws are not... If, if you're in a state without a RIFRA, then the only thing that's going to limit them is going to be the state's own constitution or the federal constitution. The federal RIFRA only applies to federal acts. Right. It can't... It was The, the Supreme Court ruled that, this, that the federal government couldn't reach into state affairs at that level okay. um, constitutionally. So... Um, you know, the, the free exercise jurisprudence has become less important mm -hmm. to the extent that, that these cases are being litigated under either a federal or a state referee. Okay. So the case I was thinking of was a referee case. I gotcha. And it involved um, a very small church that um, used a hallucinogenic drug. Um, it's, a, it's a church that um, maybe has its origins in... Uh, South America, and it's a hallucinogen from, from that area of the world, and uh, that was part of their religious practice, was to, to ingest this drug and have a, you know, deeply spiritual experience, um, but it's on the, you know, it's a federally banned drug, right. um, and so uh, they uh, sued under the Religious Freedom Rest Restoration Act, and the court found that an exemption should be made for them because it did substantially burden them. And, and making an exemption, this is the way this rule is set up, wouldn't undermine the, any interest the state had to, had to protect. So, you know, letting this very small church use this drug, which was a rather unpleasant drug, makes you throw up and stuff. Um, so it's not something that people would adopt for recreational use. Right. Um, uh, you know, there really was no great concern that suddenly that you know teenagers were going to be out using this drug because it's you know it's not it's not something that people would adopt recreationally, mm -hmm. um, and you know so it's just a completely different way of approaching these laws. Instead of saying you know hey we need to be able to have general laws and not have you know have our social order sort of run by various religious needs, which could be extremely various, right? right? Um, it says, well, you know, if you can make an exemption, 
for religious people, you should make an exemption for religious people. Right. Um, so, very different. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome.